Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. days now days since the secretary of defense lloyd austin was laid up incapacitated and the president still doesn't know what's going on with him you'll note that only republicans are talking about this story it's because democrats have given up the ghost of even giving a damn let's take a moment to understand what it is John Kirby was saying right there, what it is that has taken place. What has taken place is that the Secretary of Defense, unbeknownst to the President of the United States, to which the Secretary of Defense is responsible to, reports to, the Secretary of Defense was hospitalized for days, incapacitated, and the president was not informed. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. 833-GOT-TONY. That's the number. 833-468-8669. 833-GOT-TONY. You want to defend this? I want to hear from you. I want to hear from the people defending this. The president didn't know. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, did not know. White House aides did not know. Until three days after he was hospitalized on January 1st, did the Pentagon inform the White House. Go back to John Kirby. Between between the the two men, uh, your your question about that elective procedure is really better directed to the Pentagon, not... Uh, not to us. I want to make sure I put a fork in my answer to you. There is no uh, uh, no plans for anything other than for Secretary Austin to stay in the job and continuing the leadership that he's been exu- that he's been demonstrating. He's been demonstrating leadership. They're on Air Force One having this conversation. What leadership are you referring to? The entirety of the team didn't let the president know that he was incapacitated. The deputy secretary of defense, her name is Kathleen Hicks. She was given the secretary's responsibilities. She was on vacation. 
She was not told he was in a hospital. What leadership is this? What level of no safety is this? Well, it's massive levels of no safety. There is no system at play. These are not adults. These are children. And it's just our future in their hands. Only Republicans are upset by this. Democrats couldn't give a good, holy damn. Why is that? The reporting from, for example, Fox News, GOP senators outraged over shocking breakdown related to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's secret hospitalization. We also don't know what happened to him. So let me, uh, let me engage what can only be engaged at these moments when the Defense Secretary is incapacitated and the White House is not informed. Secretary Lloyd Austin was poisoned by the Russians. Wait, hold on. Nope, that, that we have absolutely no proof of that at all. Tony, you can't say things like that. Okay, I apologize. I apologize. We don't wanna we don't wanna speculate on why the defense secretary was hospitalized and we have not been told why uh, that is, has happened. The secretary was poisoned by the Chinese. Nope, Tony, you can't say that either. You cannot, you're not allowed to say things like that. You cannot say anything regarding, you have no proof of that. That is only going to engage in fear, Tony. You can't do it. Fine, fine, fine. I won't, I won't say anything like it. Secretary Lloyd Austin was attacked by the Israelis. Well, it's about the Jews, and that's fine. You can say anything you want about those people. It's totally okay. No, Tony, you can't really say that. But they said I could say it. Yeah, well, that's because they hate Jews, but they don't want to say they hate Jews, so they'll let you say it even though they don't want you to say it. But you shouldn't say it because you're actually a decent person. I have no idea what happened to Secretary Austin. I don't have the slightest clue. That in and of itself is a problem, and that is going to engage this. Get ready for it. You're going to hear it everywhere, all over the place. But let's go back to that headline. GOP senators outraged over shocking breakdown related to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's secret hospitalization. That's Fox. Axios? Republicans erupt over secrecy in Defense Secretary's hospitalization. Those are actually different headlines. Republicans erupt. Senators outraged. They're different headlines. The question before us is, how come no Democrats are upset with the total breakdown in communication? Speaking of, I've got the threat of China. I've got the Houthi rebels thinking that they're in charge of the navigable seas and the United States is letting them do it. I have got an issue on the southern border that is bigger than anybody talks about. I have got uh, Russia trying its best to break any line they can in Ukraine. And I have got Israel and Hamas in a fight to hopefully Hamas's death. You're the president of the United States. You got all this going on. You haven't heard from your defense secretary in three days. 
Oh, I know, I know. Joey's on vacation having a little bit of ice cream saying this is the life. Top of the world, ma. From Scranton to St. Croix. That's where he did his vacation. He wasn't in his in touch with his defense secretary for three days. Well, now I have a question. How often does he speak to his defense secretary? How often? How often does he speak to his team? I have questions. I would like an answer uh, to the question. I think you would too. No one notified the White House. So first you've got the total breakdown there. The total, uh, uh, no one for three days, for three days, no one thought to call the president. No one said in a meeting, by the way, anybody call Joe? No one said that. If your mother was in the hospital, an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours would go by. You're sitting there at 2 a.m. You're waiting to get some information from this surgery. And someone would say, should we call Aunt Frida? Somebody would ask that question. And for three days, no one asked. Anybody call Joe? Should we call Joe? As a matter of fact, as was reported, Secretary Lloyd Austin's chief of staff was uh, herself sick. So because the chief of staff has got the sniffles, nobody else in the office knew how to pick up a phone? Oh, that's not my responsibility. Oh, that's not my job. Oh, that's not what I do. Is that right? Now let's go back again to the fact that nobody contacted the president. You're now the president of the United States. What do you mean one of my highest ranking cabinet officials was in the hospital for three days, incapacitated, and nobody called me? Did he have security around him? Was he lucid? Was he saying things he shouldn't say? To whom was he saying these things? Who was in the room with him? Who was vetted? You're the president, and you're not so angry you start firing people? No, you've got John Kirby there in the White House saying, uh, or, or on, on Air Force One, oh, no, no, the, the secretary is going to keep uh, engaging in some wonderful leadership. Wonderful leadership? You're making your boss look like a schmuck. Your boss, who is inept and is old and is a fool, looks like an inept old fool. Ah, yeah, I'm going to be in the hospital. I'm not even telling him. I'm not even, this guy, he won't even know. Well, he's going to notice. This whole thing. This whole thing is flat out nutty. And I would leave it at nutty if it wasn't so wholly dangerous. And I'm going to say it again. Democrats don't give a damn. Why? I make no argument to the fact that Joe Biden is president and that Lloyd Austin is the Secretary of Defense. I'm not claiming that these things aren't real. I am making the statement that we have to run things like professionals. And the Defense Secretary 
didn't let the president know he was incapacitated. No one in his staff uh, was told, why don't you want people fired? Why aren't you bothered by this? Because just like I ask uh, a, a series of questions and how these things pile on one another, who else has been incapacitated or out of the office or unresponsive and Joe Biden didn't know? Leads to another question. Would Joe Biden know if he knew? Does he not get told because no one feels the need to tell him anything? Because they all act independently because they know he's a doddering old fool, incapable of the daily task. They know that he's just propped up there. The the latest video of, of Joe Biden, after he's giving that ridiculous Valley Forge speech, um, is him being led off the stage by Dr. Jill Biden. Joe Biden can't get himself off a stage. It's... I'm not being rude. I'm not attacking him. These are the facts. And if you say to me, I'm an ageist, I'll say to you, damn straight I am. I'm I'm an ageist. I went to go visit my parents. My father's 85. My mother is 76. How dare you say your mother's age? Please, it's fine. Um... It has not been a good few years, kittens. It has not been a good few years for health. You know what my conversation is now? Am I taking over their finances? They're not gone. They're not the same. To what extent is the responsibility of the son? Well, I think the responsibility starts with taking your emotion out of it. Because if you leave your emotion into it, you're you're wrecked. (laughs) You are you are gone. You will just be sitting in a corner in a pile of your own tears and bourbon saying, what happened? You got to take the emotion out of it. Is this where we're at? For their safety. Which is seen as an act of, could be seen, depending on the parent, depending on what's going on in the mind, as an act of anger when it's, only meant to be an act of love. I'm an ageist. There comes a moment where you can't do what you used to do. Why is this now a bad conversation? Because it's about Joe Biden? Because it's about the Democrat? I don't give a damn. It doesn't mean it. it doesn't matter. It's the, the, the facts matter. Not, not, not the emotion. How many times has no one told Biden? And how many times has Biden been told and not remember he was told? Series of questions that come from this. And the idea that Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, isn't going to lose his job? These are not adults in charge by any stretch of the imagination. Any president who would accept this is a Damn fool. I'm Tony Katz. I didn't know I'd have a theme today. 
But if there is one, it's the level of unseriousness by those who claim to be our betters. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. What is going on, Kitten? 833-468-8669-833. Got Tony. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. The mayor of Chicago, the socialist, Brandon Johnson, goes on TV with Al Sharpton, the race hustler and bigot. I'm sorry, too soon? No, I didn't forget Freddie's Fashion Mart said what I said. Um, The mayor, who doesn't believe you should get upset with... uh, any uh, mob running through the city because they might be made up of teenagers and that's just wrong to do. Who doesn't uh, at once ever take a look at his own policies, only looks at the, the policies of others like the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, who is sending these people coming to the country illegally to all these sanctuary cities because this is what they wanted. He is on Al Sharpton's show. Al Sharpton has a show, ladies and gentlemen, on MSNBC. And the reason that Greg Abbott is sending uh, illegal immigrants to these cities? Well, you know, look, you're very, you're absolutely right about the intentions of Governor Abbott. Um, He is attacking democratically ran cities, and particularly cities that are being led um, by black leaders or leaders of color. This is unconscionable. I mean, it's a very raggedy approach. And quite frankly, not only is it reckless and raggedy, um, but it is evil spirited. And so what... First of all, I don't know, uh, raggedy, who uses that term? Secondly, you're a sanctuary city, you're a black mayor, What? what's the issue? Only black mayors? Weren't we, wasn't he sending people to uh, Martha's Vineyard? It's racist to send them to you? You DEI people are freaking ridiculous. You are children. No mind whatsoever. All you can do is scream race because why should you have to have a conversation about your failed policies? Which brings us to everybody's favorite fool, Representative Ocasio-Cortez. I never really spoke about her like that before. I've always said that her policies are childlike. But I don't know her as a person. She might be a nice friend. She might be a nice daughter. I I have no idea about her personally. But her policies are childlike. But it's gotten so much worse that she is, uh, as is described and as was utilized, uh, a, a useful idiot. She is the definition of that terminology. Her solution to dealing with the border while she's on The Daily Show, which used to be a show that you might actually want to watch on Comedy Central, and then Trevor Noah kind of ruined it, and now it's just ridiculous. From all parts of the political spectrum, one of the biggest issues that we have when it comes to immigration is the fact that we have an undocumented population. Mm -hmm. Now, you can fix that by trying to build a wall, or you can fix that by trying to document people and create a path to citizenship. The backwards logic, never mind the cheering hordes of of the pseudo-intellectual. She is telling you there's no need for a border. There's no need for border security. It doesn't matter. 
just make them citizens. You can make the you can get rid of the undocumented problem by making them documented. That's a take. A lot of hate in that. And as I said about the mayor of Chicago, there's a lot of hate in DEI. But there is nothing that will prepare you for what took place on Chris Wallace's show. Yes, he's still alive and he has a show. And normally I wouldn't have paid attention. But holy moly, you got to hear it. Don't go anywhere. This is Tony Katz today. What you are about to hear is a true story. No names have been changed to protect the innocent because none of these people are innocent. They are guilty. Guilty as sin. Guilty as the sun rises in the east. And they should be held accountable for their crimes against humanity. That crime being complete and total nonsense merchants. Right in front of your very eyes. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. I saw the, the, the post there on X from Jonah Goldberg. And Jonah Goldberg, a smart dude, but Jonah Goldberg, um, with, with the, the, the Trump hate, a level of unseriousness. I'm not saying you have to like the man. I'm not saying you have to vote for the man. But anytime you position yourself in the never Trump category, you are unserious. It is an un, it is a not conservative position. And you cannot tell me you're a conservative and do that. You can have disagreements. You can ha- have issue. Not communist. That you can do. Never Trump. Mm, that doesn't that doesn't even doesn't compute. But if you didn't like things that Fox was doing regarding the election and talking about the election, you were more than welcome to quit. And he did, and okay, fine. Jonah Goldberg, I think, has hurt himself. But I won't take away from the fact that he has written good books, bright dude. But when he posted on X, here's the clip uh, 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 of me uh, on Chris Wallace's show. I almost responded... Dude, because he was upset with something he said. He thought he said something glib, and he should have said something else. And I almost responded, dude, no one's watching Chris Wallace's show. No one cares. Don't worry about it. But I didn't. Instead, I watched the clip. And after watching the clip, I commend you to watch it. Because if you don't, you are missing some of the greatest nonsense the world has ever seen from two, one uh, Kara Swisher from the New York Times and then a New York Times uh, podcaster. It's surreal. So it starts with, or I start it with, this uh, question that Chris Wallace is asking Jonah Goldberg. Now, Jonah Goldberg is joined by Raihan Salam. Now, I don't know Raihan. I do know he works at City Journal. That's the Manhattan Institute. And City Journal is spectacular. 
You want to talk about having your mind blown, realizing maybe for the first time ever, oh yeah, these people are definitely smarter than me. City Journal. And I'm not saying you agree. I am saying just from the recognition that there are people out there smarter than you. Because <laughs> when I first read City Journal, I couldn't believe what I was reading. And then I, uh, there are only two times in my entire radio career that I've been rendered speechless. And one of them was from Nicole Gelinas of City Journal, who kicked my ass on air. The other one, former Congressman Thaddeus McCotter. True story. I'll tell that another time. So this starts with a conversation, a question uh, Chris Wallace asks to Jonah Goldberg about Biden and this Valley Ford speech. And I mean, he did everything but, but, but call Trump Hitler. That's what he wants to say. So it starts in that vein. The MAGA extremist argument, which is the one that in the fall of 2022, Biden made, uh, worked very well for him and for Democrats in the midterm. What do you think of him going to that argument and literally in the speech on Friday talking about Nazis and that and comparing Trump's rhetoric to Nazi rhetoric doing it this early? Yeah, I think that's the right question. It's a tactical question to me as just a matter of politics. I would have his surrogates doing that now. Um, there's a real problem of or there's a real potential of this all just sort of becoming background noise and there's no shock value to it by the time you get yeah. to the general election. Um, and so it's it's going to be dismissed by a lot of people on the right pretty early because argumentum ad Hitlerum is an old tactic of the left. And um, even if it has more salience now, uh, but I just feel like it's a little early to come out of the blocks like this. Well, because I, I don't know who it's going to persuade. Where, Unless the point is just purely persuading his own coalition to come home. Where do you go when you start with Hitler? Like, really, what, Satan? I'm not sure where you move. And so I think one of the problems he's got is one thing he could do is keep repeating it and repeating it. And the more we see Trump and he says crazy things and people pay attention to it, then people will. Well, 11 months is a we should start with the recognition that they're having a an honest-to-goodness conversation at the start about the possible value of comparing somebody to Hitler. I. They're not saying it shouldn't happen whatsoever. They're saying maybe it's too early. This is exactly the kind of nonsense that I expect from a CNN show. I mean, I should say it's exactly the kind of nonsense that you see on an MSNBC show, but you're not surprised it's on CNN. Kara Swisher and this other uh, host continue. It's a long time. To it is a long time, and but you know it'll grow over time. It'll grow over time that people go, "Oh, that guy." And I think it's better to say, "Look at that guy," than "Look at me." Also, one advantage of it though is that when Trump gets called Hitler, Trump's response is to say, "Hey." I didn't get this from Mein Kampf. I came up with this language all on my own, right? So it's sort of like, I didn't plagiarize Hitler. I just used duplicative language. Sure. And, and I don't think that's a great president defense. of Harvard if you did that. But, but, Lula, you, what did you want to say? What I wanted to say is, I mean, as a tactic, sure, is it going to get old? But this is his central message. This has been the, his central message since the moment that he actually said that he was going to try and become president of the United States. Um, it is not unusual for Biden to say... This is why I am here. I am fighting for democracy. I am fighting for this country. And I consider to be Trump to be an existential but threat. Let, the argument that you think Trump is a threat is an argument that is based on 
A, fear, and B, a falsehood. Because you're not actually making an argument that Trump is a threat. You're making an argument that the people who would vote for Trump are a threat. And this is the, 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 the topic that would, would need to be discussed if this was an honest conversation. First, they're arguing when is the practical moment to compare someone to Hitler, which is disgusting from all of them. Anybody who's participating in this. And secondly, none of this is about Trump. It's about the people voting for Trump. And the willingness to dismiss and attack and destroy and vilify them. Now it gets interesting. Let's be honest about something. One of the reasons, and you kind of touched on it in the beginning, one of the reasons that Biden is taking this route is because he has spent all fall touting his own record, leaning into Bidenomics, and it didn't work. Take a look at this latest CNN average of recent polls. At this point, 38% approve of the job the president is doing, 58% disapprove. Ryan, I mean, you know, he saw he was making the affirmative case for himself and folks weren't buying it. Joe Biden's best chance right now is to have a low turnout election. We are in a very different moment right now in which in the past the assumption was always uh, among progressive activists. We need to get folks to turn out. We do better in presidential years than we do in off year elections. Now it's very different. Jonah mentioned very astutely that in 2022, these tactics worked because you had a somewhat more affluent, more educated electorate. A lot of folks were on the sidelines. What Biden is trying to do here, I suspect, is trying to demotivate some folks, number one. Number two, try to see to it that people who might otherwise go to a no labels candidate or to Robert Kennedy Jr. stick with him out of the sense that the alternative is so noxious and terrible. Now, that might be true. That might be very true, and the reason Joe Biden is doing what he's doing. But it gets nutty, because then they start getting into a conversation about DEI. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, which of course is bigoted. So these are the people who started with the conversation about whether or not utilizing Trump comparisons is a matter of timing. Now I've moved into the DEI conversation. I promised you the madness. I said that it was crazy town. You're going to hear from all four of them, including Kara Swisher of of the New York Times, and you're going to hear from this podcaster. I can't make this up, kids. ...about after the murder of George Floyd. I think there is a broad sense that that racial reckoning involved smuggling in certain really contentious ideological ideas that weren't ultimately about diversity, but rather were about imposing ideological uniformity. When you're looking at DEI bureaucracies, what really is noxious about them is that they actually don't respect all sorts of diversity, including viewpoint diversity, including the fact that, look, in some cases, you have groups that are overrepresented, and that can be okay. You know, the point that J.D. Vance was making about the Dallas Mavericks is that it can be good and healthy and reasonable in some domains to have overrepresentation, and underrepresentation can also be... Well, you can say it's ridiculous, you can make that assertion, but fundamentally the fact that, you know, 
I am one second generation Asian American on a panel of four. I am massively, massively overrepresented. But I think it's reasonable to say that you're going to judge people based on their merits. And when you're looking at organizations that count that matter, high performance organizations. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. The woman interrupting is very, very important. And I know this because she says ridiculo and then says, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, and interrupts. But it is absolutely true what Raihan Solom is saying here. He would be overrepresented on a panel of four based on the statistics of the nation. But he's on the panel because he has got a skill set that allows him to be able to engage these conversations effectively. That's a legitimate statement. The leftists from the New York Times have no time for this. And this woman, this podcaster, is interrupting him. I need you to remember that. It's called foreshadowing, Kitten. I need you to remember that. She interrupted him. This is the burden, and I can't tell you how infuriating I find it. This is the burden that always comes with representation. The idea is that because you are a person of color, suddenly um, it is uh, you are only there because it is some noblesse oblige. It is because some white guilt put you there because there was some DEI initiative and you can't win either either way you look at it. I mean, what infuriates me is you look at the whole Claudine Gay thing and, and everyone's talking about DEI. This woman cannot win or lose either if she is there. I'm happy to talk about no, let me finish. Day, let, let me let me let me finish. If she's you interrupted him. He said he's happy to talk about Claudine Gay, and then you keep saying, "Let me finish." You interrupted him. But wait. There. It's because of DEI that they put her there because she's black. If she loses and they kick her out, it's because she actually was never good enough to be there in the beginning. And she was you can't win in this situation. And it is and it is infuriating as a person of color to constantly have this cudgel put on our I get the argument you can't win, but you also can't have it both ways. You can't celebrate and tout that someone was hired and it's a wonderful thing to expand diversity and Harvard went full tilt talking about how great it was to hire the first black woman and then say all of a sudden the first when black caught, person it wasn't even the okay. first black woman it was okay. the first black person I don't care the point is is that she got caught obviously plagiarizing and that is the those are the facts that you know this is massive this was an piece. ideological Absolutely. very well funded the, the motives and, of the attack and, don't and, change the fact that she plagiarized It doesn't matter to them that she plagiarized. Listen to this defense of DEI. The plagiarism doesn't matter. It was a well-funded attack by Christopher Rufo, whose name will come up in this, who is a compatriot of uh, uh, Raihan Salem over there at uh, the Manhattan Institute. It was all an attack because she's black. No, she plagiarized. It got found out. The accounts are dozens and dozens of pieces of plagiarism, uh, engagements of plagiarism. But the DEI people don't care. It doesn't matter to them. And and where I disagree with you, Kara, is when you say 
when somebody we, fails who's white and and who's mean, a man, let me finish. Like when someone fails, when, right. well, yes, when someone nobody, in fact, there's books written about this fail and then come back. Um, you know, look pivot. look at pivot exactly pivot. pivot. Nice way to get in your Thank podcast. You. Um, <laughs> you know, pivot and then. When a person of color fails, all of a sudden it's an indictment of an entire system that the right doesn't like. This is like. so ridiculous. She was a graduate of Exeter and Stanford with a Ph.D. from Harvard. And you know she, why? A second you generation, so second generation Haitian-American who came from a family that dominated the concrete industry Fine, in Haiti. She was not the wretched of the earth. She was someone who should no. be judged on her merits. Wait, and I'm her sorry, chief qualification... Here is the dissertation, the explanation of who Claudine Gay, the former Harvard president, is. Her story, she comes from the elite of the elite, a wealthy family in Haiti. Exeter, you're talking about one of the finest, quote-unquote, finest private schools in the nation. Stanford, Harvard, Ph.D. And then he makes a statement, she's not part of the wretched refuge. And what does this DEI drama queen from the New York Times say? Wait, if you're black, you're wretched? No one said that. No one came close to saying that. But when your entire world and existence is predicated on race, this is all you can do. It is incredible. This, I'll have it posted over at TonyCats.com. Sarah, we got to get that done. It is unbelievable because I haven't gotten onto all of it. It's unbelievable. And you'll note that when she interrupts, it's fine. But when one of these two men responds, hold on, hold on, wait your turn, wait a second. They are disrespectful, these DEI people and these acolytes, these progressives, these elitists, these smug, smug pseudo-intellectuals. You must watch this. And then, don't let these people anywhere near power. I'm Tony Katz. So we have got the Dow right now down just 10 points. The NASDAQ up 219. And the 10-year Treasury at 3.971, which we can see that go down. We can see mortgage rates going down. I'll take. I'm Tony Katz. Live from the heartland. And the crossroads of America. It's Tony Katz today. No light. Without light, there's no path from this darkness. If you really care about the lives lost here. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. It's a church. Mother Emanuel Amy Church in South Carolina, as there's the President of the United States, flanked by Representative James Clyburn, who 
I don't know if you caught him over the weekend. You want to talk about some maddening comments. You take a look at the shooting that took place in 2015 that led to the death of nine. Nine people were killed. And it is undoubtedly true that that shooting took place because, I don't use shooter names, wanted to kill black people. That's fact. But it's Trump's fault? Is it fair to tie in any way what happened at the Emanuel AME Church to Donald Trump? Donald Trump had barely launched his campaign when that attack happened. Well, thank you very much for having me, Jake. I think it is very clear uh, that Donald Trump's utterances uh, way back before Charlottesville, or at the time of Charlottesville, ties him uh, to uh, what happened uh, at Mother Emanuel. Do you know how deranged you have to be to say that? You have to be Jim Clyburn deranged. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. I don't know if I gave the number or not. 833-GOT-TONY. 833-468-8669. It's a disgusting thing to say. It's a complete and total lie. Trump was not in office. He had, as Jake Tapper pointed out, nothing to do with it whatsoever. But you cannot stop these bigots, and I'm calling Jim Clyburn a bigot, these hateful people from not engaging honestly, but engaging solely and wholly in fear-mongering and increasing racial divides because that's how they believe they can win. Disgusting. Let's go back to the same church where Joe Biden is, and Joe Biden is getting heckled. This happened today. Joe Biden is getting heckled, but did you hear what the heckler said? You should, if you really believe in peace and seeing the light, you should call for a ceasefire in Palestine. From that one statement, you understand the hatred involved. And let me be perfectly clear that anti-Semitism in the United States is okay with Joe Biden, is on the rise because of Joe Biden. Joe Biden is at fault. Joe Biden is guilty. Now you say to me, Tony, you can't really say that. Sure I can. Every bit of racial strife was Donald Trump's fault. Joe Biden is president, and I have got high schoolers playing basketball where the opposing team is screaming, I support Hamas. Not I support the people of Gaza. Not we should uh, stop the killing. I support Hamas. Joe Biden's America has open, aggressive anti-Semitism and it wasn't just I support Hamas one of the teams had a player screaming I support Hamas you blanking Jew if they had said I support whatever you blanking n-word let me ask the following question how many hosts on MSNBC would have a heart attack 
All of them? Is, is that the correct answer? All of them. But this can happen. Whatever. That's Joe Biden's America. That is Joe Biden's Jew-hating America. I said it. I meant it. I apologize to absolutely no one. That's the country he created. But let's see how it goes. That's all right. That's all right. Maybe it's because it's a church. But nobody punched these people in the face and dragged them out. That's too bad, if you ask me. That's really too bad. You see, the protesters have now gotten to the place where they have blocked the Holland Tunnel. The Holland Tunnel connects New Jersey and New York. I've been through the Holland Tunnel many times. Blocking the Holland Tunnel. How is this even allowed? Not only are they doing it, but the cops are protecting them. They're blocking... Bridges. Lift the siege on Gaza. U.S. stop arming Israel. You understand that what these people want are dead Jews. They want Israel destroyed. They aren't looking for peace. They're looking for the destruction. If they favored Hamas surrendering, oh my gosh, that would work. Because then you could actually have peace. If Hamas was gone, gone, you could actually have peace. It would take a little while, but you can get there. Can't get there with a terrorist organization that wants to destroy a country. This came to a head for me as I was reading a piece over at National Review. I read a lot of different things, sometimes because I think they're right, sometimes because I think they're wrong. The anti-Israel hooligans have lost the plot the story goes, from Judson Berger. And it's um, how these protesters, they're not trying to put an end to fighting. They're trying to put an end to Israel. Just like you heard uh, that child there. I don't know how old that woman is, but uh, when you're that moronic, I call you a child. Um, stop uh, the, the, the fighting in, in Palestine. There is no Palestine. There's no Palestine. It's Israel. So it's an admission that you want Israel not to exist. Zionism is anti-Semitic. Hamas and long live the resistance. This from people uh, marching in New York. Yemen, Yemen, make us proud. Turn another ship around. Because, of course, you have the Houthi rebels out of Yemen attacking ships in the Red Sea uh, and, and, and other places, changing the way they do shipping. They're keeping people hostage. So you're in favor of hostage taking. The point that this person, uh, this author makes Even if the marchers have lost their focus, nobody should forget that this is the conduct they justify, the any means they endorse. They have not lost the plot. This is the plot. The plot is Marxism. You want them to stay on message because you think they have a message. Of course they don't have a message. 
Not about Israel, not about Gaza. They couldn't find Gaza on a map, guys. You know it and I know it and they know it. The plot is the Marxism. Ask them. The people of Gaza are oppressed and Israel, the Jews, are the oppressor. There's no conversation about history. There's no conversation about um, uh, uh, logic. There's no conversation about the facts. I, I will give you an example of this. This took place in my beloved Indianapolis. Earlier today, there was a rally. All right, all of nine people showed up, but it might have been 32 people. It was a rally for a ceasefire in Gaza and an end to U.S. military aid to Israel from two groups. The Middle Eastern Student Association at a, at a school called IUPUI, which is now IU, Indiana University, Indianapolis. And Jewish Voice for Peace, Indiana. Now, understand that Jewish Voice for Peace has nothing to do with being Jewish. Nothing to do with being Jewish. It, 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 it is a group of commies. These are, are socialists from the word go. And the Judaism means nothing to them. They don't speak for Jews at all and in any way. I speak for more Jews than this group of nonsense commies. They speak for commies, not for Jews. I said it. I meant it. And they have a rally. I want, you to, I want to share with you what they write in their press release. The Indianapolis community will rally to demand that our federal, state, and local officials call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and an end to all military aid to Israel. We say, wake up, Indianapolis. We must not ignore the catastrophic conditions resulting from Israeli bombardment with the full support of our government and our tax dollars. They continue. For over 80 days, Gaza has been under near-constant bombardment and siege by the state of Israel. Over 22,000 Palestinians have been killed, with many thousand more still missing, buried under rubble. With lack of access to food and clean drinking water, the United Nations is reporting half of Gaza's population is at risk of starvation. Nowhere in their statement... Do they mention Hamas and the constant attacks on Israel? Nor do they mention the attack of October 7th. There is no mention of it. They don't care about that. That is not the part that matters. That's the part that they cheer. If you're not willing to accept how this began... How serious can you be? Well, why would you accept how it began? You're saying that it was justified because Israel has done this and Israel's done that and Israel's done the other. Kitten, throughout history, every nation has engaged in some crap. No one is perfect and you can't create perfection. Your lie, this lie that you tell yourself about communism, that somehow you can create the utopia, you can't create a utopia. You believe in the destruction of another people. What utopia could you possibly create? I believe in the destruction of Hamas. What utopia can I create? Oh, no, no, no. I can't create utopia. I think you have a chance at peace, though. Yeah, there'll be some people in Gaza who always hate the Jews, and there are going to be some Israelis who always hate the people of Gaza. That's fine. Just don't go about killing one another. 
This is a civility conversation, in a, in a way. People mistakenly, foolhardily think that civility is please and thank you and opening the door for people. No, no, no. Civility is not killing your neighbor. Civility is allowing the minority to speak. Civility is not having a rabid minority think that it can overtake uh, a, a, a choir to majority. That's civility. People hate each other all the time. They work together. Bob Dole hated Jack Kemp, and Jack Kemp hated Bob Dole, and they ran for president and vice president together. These things happen all the time. But the idea that somehow you can create this wonderful, glorious society, what society are you talking about? Well, everything was fine uh, until uh, the white man showed up uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in North America. The tribes that lived here, the people that lived here, weren't killing each other and raping each other every chance? It was all just harmony? Have you not read a book? It's embarrassing at this stage of the game. But more than that, when you will not mention Hamas at all, you're saying that it doesn't matter. They... You think that that, uh, blocking bridges is losing the plot? No, no, no. This is all it is. This is all they know how to do. And why do we accept it? You know what happens when people block uh, a bridge or block a tunnel? They get run over. Keep driving. What happened to New Yorkers? Uh, I grew up in, in, in Jersey. I grew up in Jersey. All I heard were stories of New York. These people were supposedly tough. How tough could they possibly be? You're going to let a group of 30 protesters, all of them more beta male than the other one, including the women who won't admit that they're women. You're going to let them be in charge? Are you out of your mind? But all of this... All of this is because of Joe Biden. Is because there is absolutely no moral clarity that comes from this White House. There's no moral clarity that comes from university campuses. There's no moral clarity that comes from elected leadership. Zero. Ah, shouldn't say zero. Just not enough. Just not enough. So they're blocking traffic. They're protesting the president. And they think that this is going to put an end to aid. I hope not. I really and truly hope not. But I hope you understand that um, the, uh, the fight in front of you and in front of your kids is not... The fight against anti-Semitism, although I appreciate the support. It is the fight against Marxism. It is the fight against uh, this idea of occupied and occupier. It's that. It is about the destruction of America, of Western civilization, of decency, of rational thought. You think they're coming after Jews? No. They're coming after you. I'm Tony Katz. Her name is Stephanie Niles. 
and she'll be sitting in for Taylor Swift as the NFL's wag of choice. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Do they still use the term wag? Wives and girlfriends? Of NFL players? It's often referred to as wags. W-A-G-S. Not trying to be rude. That's the, the reference point that I know of. Well, Jake Browning, who is the backup quarterback in Cincinnati for the Bengals, not bad, has a girlfriend by the name of Stephanie Niles. I didn't know this until all I saw all over social media and all over TV was this woman in a suite at the game in a white bodysuit with an orange hat, like a kind of floppy orange hat. With the number six on 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 the bodysuit, which is uh, Jake Browning's number, and then people said, uh, "Who's that?" And that is Stephanie Niles, who said, "Hey, I'd like to be famous," and said, "Okay, this will fit," and wore a completely white bodysuit. Um, this is the way I was asked, I was having a cigar the other day and I was asked what I think about name image likeness, NIL, name image likeness that allows these college players to get paid based on on who they are and their popularity. You take Olivia Dunn from LSU, the gymnast, she's making millions. Having nothing to do with gymnastics, of course. I mean, honesty is honesty. There, there are definitely guys who make money from the name, image, likeness. Arch Manning and others. But are we going to pretend that in the vast majority of cases, the women making money from NIL, it's, 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 not, it's not for the sports, it's, it's not for the skill set. Stephanie Niles is four seconds away from launching an OnlyFans. This is the way. Show them how good you look. Get paid. Makes me think I got to pull out my white bodysuit. Oh, I look good. Uh, okay, it looks like a two-body suit, right? That's, that's what it looks like. But so good. So good, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, she'll be the new it girl until they can get back to Taylor Swift. We should talk about her at the Golden Globes tomorrow because that girl needs to learn how to laugh. I'm Tony Katz. It is the Monday after the regular season of the NFL, which means coaches are getting fired all over the place. The Falcons coach has been fired. You already know that the Panthers got rid of coach Frank Reich. They have now gotten rid of their general manager. Uh, Ron Rivera has been fired from the Washington Commanders. That I'm actually a little bit surprised by, not giving the guy time to, I think, really build something because he proved he can... He can coach. He can do the job. Tony Katz, good to be with you. Tony Katz today. JMV joins us. He is the voice of sports in Indiana, where in the state of Indiana, the focus is on the fact that the Colts could not get it done. They lose 23 
to 19. They are unable to get into the playoffs. They had Jonathan Taylor run for 188 yards. But on fourth and one, they throw it to Tyler Goodson in the flat. Little screen, bloop, little screen. And he drops the ball. That's the story, but I don't know if that's really the right story. JMV, let's talk about this game from beginning to end. Offense, defense, special teams where you missed a field goal. You gave up a 75-yard touchdown from C.J. Stroud uh, to uh, Nico Collins on that very first play. Talk to, Break this down for me. What did you see from the Colts? Well, that's where it starts right there, too, is defense, defensively. Uh, you had C.J. Stroud. You knew he was going to be tough. You knew Nico Collins was going to be tough. And then you really didn't have to deal with a lot of other factors in that game. If you're, you know, that defense and Gus Bradley, even with a, a secondary that's without a, a great deal of veteran presence, you know, without a great deal of really anything, um, you knew who you had to deal with. And what's scary about that is if you had any focus whatsoever on Nico Collins, I can't imagine – what he would have done had you not had any focus or forgotten about him. Nearly 200 yards in receiving, he and C.J. Stroud, they were the difference in that game. Now, a lot of things when hey guy for the Colts at home, there's no doubt about it. But defensively, defensively, I start right there. And it really was that first half, Tony. It was just such a discombobulated, for the most part, first half for this team. They let the Texans get up, get a little motivation, came out in the third quarter to the Colts, and you thought, wow, this is reminiscent of that Steeler game of the second half. You know, maybe this is what they're going to have, and that wasn't it wasn't long-lasting. They get awful play from their quarterback. Uh, their offense wasn't very good other than Jonathan Taylor. That was about it. And they get a, a really bad home loss. And then we forgot to add the fact that yesterday, Tony, Jacksonville loses in Nashville. So for the first time in nine seasons, had the Colts won Saturday night, they would have been AFC South division champions and would be hosting a home playoff game on Saturday afternoon against the Cleveland Browns. All of that lost with that dismal effort and play we saw on Saturday night here. I want to bring it to Gardner Minshew. 13 for 24, 141 yards. I like him. I like his attitude. He can't do it. Is he back with the Colts next year? I think this is just me, and I thought he stunk because he, uh, he did stink. He stunk. Their offense besides Taylor stunk. But to answer your question, there's such a great unknown regarding Anthony Richardson and whether or not he's going to be sustainable here. I know everybody has these visions of greatness long-term, and I'm not going to try to squash on that right now. But let's just face it, you don't know. So what do you need? You need a veteran backup just in case. And This has been really – the season of backup presence. I mean, you've seen it with Joe Flacco coming in and playing in, in Cleveland. You've seen it in, in so many other places to try to remain relevant, sustainable, competitive. So I think it would be foolhardy for the Colts to really do anything else. I guess the question might be, Tony, is he going to get any market value out there, you know, just beyond the backup role? Um, I doubt after Saturday's game, if you're going to watch that tape, you're going to get any offers for any teams about being the, the starter, the number one, any place. I think that it would be to me relatively, I'm going to say easy. It's probably not going to be, but relatively easy to bring him back in a backup role. And in fact, I think he should be brought back in that backup role. Talking to JMV, the voice of sports in Indiana. I, I can accept it. 
I can. But there, there's clearly an, an, an issue here with him seeing the play and, and making the play. But sometimes the, the, the passing game doesn't click. The running game did. 30 carries, 188 yards for Jonathan Taylor, only uh, 30 yards for Zach Moss, and I think you could have given him a heck of a lot more carries. Let's bring it to that last play. You've got fourth and one. You've been doing this on the ground. You've got 218 yards between Jonathan Taylor and Zach Moss. You've got an offensive line that was really humming right into the third quarter, and yet you had an injury and a timeout, and then all of a sudden they just kind of slowed down. But they they were still able to move. You don't run it. You go with this play that clearly was designed. Shane Steichen had it in the bag where you're going to do this pass over to, 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 to Tyler Goodson, get a couple of yards for that screen pass, and that's how you're going to move forward. It doesn't work. Talk to me about the play. What's your take? Um, I, I, my take is it wasn't a bad decision in terms of the play that was called. Well, that was not a bad decision. Um, and you could certainly have executed that on both ends and things could have been different. But it was a horrendous decision not to have 28 on the field. And I don't care in what capacity. And, in fact, if you wanted to do something, you needed to go to – how should I put this? Go-to guys. So Gardner Menchu to Tyler Goodson, that's what you're going to hang. Your season is in the balance, biggest play of the year, and that is the direction you're going to go while the best player on your team – uh, the most defining player in terms of other teams preparing for and had a milestone game to that point. The bottle was Tony got injured and then came back out there. You're going to sit him on the sideline for that play. That, that decision is malpractice. The execution of the play call, I don't mind the play call. The execution was bad, but not have 28 in some capacity on the field as a decoy or utilizing him to me was absolutely ridiculous. Okay. Allow me to um, tell you how wrong you are, which (laughs) I never get to do. When you brought in Shane Steichen, because I think my take is different than a lot of people's. When you brought in Shane Steichen, this is exactly what you expected. You expected the guy who screws around on fourth down and tries to do the fake punt. You expected the guy to have the trick up his sleeve. You expected the guy who does the unexpected. It is not only clear that they had this this play ready to go. They had practiced this play. Tyler Goodson knew the play. Minshew knew the play. The pass was a little bit behind Taylor Good, uh, Tyler Goodson. It, that's not an excuse. Goodson should have caught it. And he didn't. But the idea that it had to have Jonathan Taylor on the field is nonsense. And anybody mad at Shane Steichen hasn't been watching this season. True or false? No, I think that's absolutely false. Tony, it is the way that it is defensively, when you're looking at the other offense, there are some guys that are going to get your attention. Rick Venturi has told me this forever. Some guys, he calls them ambient players, they're going to get your attention because you want to know where they are and what they're doing whenever they're on the field against you. And 28 is that. I'm not at all suggesting the play wasn't a good call, and I'm not at all suggesting they haven't practiced it over and over again. The things I question would, again, not having the threat in any capacity whatsoever, giving the Texans a break. The best player in the game for the Colts over on the sideline. 
you give them a break with not having to deal with him, and they would take that all day long, regardless of how many times that the Colts have practiced between you know Minshew and and Goodson. I'm, I'm not at all ripping on the play call. The play call was sound because, as Shane Steichen said after the game, the look was there. The execution was, and I guess one thing I would question about it as well would be how much I think these guys were together maybe one time earlier in a pass play attempt, and it went egregiously haywire too. I just I don't know what look or not why you felt compelled to put all your eggs in that particular basket. I, I get what you're saying. You're saying, hey, it doesn't have to be about Jonathan Taylor. But if you're saying – Shane Steichen, is, is, we can like agree with this. He deals in gamesmanship. He's always, you know, jacking around on those fourth down calls to try to get another team and his coach to use a timeout. To me, a part of gamesmanship is making sure that you have the best offensive player on the field for you out there in that situation, even if you're not going to go to him, even if you're going to utilize him. And that's where I find fault in Shane Steichen. It doesn't Ooh. mean I don't think Shane Steichen is not going to be a coach in the future, Ooh. but I find, I find fault with that. And here's the other thing. If we reverse this and all of a sudden Frank Reich is the coach again and Frank Reich calls that play and it goes down like that and Frank Reich has 28 on the sideline, people would be all over Frank Reich right now. And that's the difference is it's still a honeymoon period for Shane oh, Steichen. No. And it wasn't for Frank Reich. Oh. It would be all over him for that. Oh, we all should be in him. a boxing ring right now talking to JMV, the voice <laughs> of sports in Indiana. I, I'm gonna. I'm going to now give you credit for something. Okay. Tyler Goodson was open. It was there. The play itself was indeed accurate, and Shane Steichen has earned from this this fan base the opportunity to be himself because he actually did get some wins and guys are actually serious about playing ball. The play was indeed a worthwhile play. And yes, poor execution. But going back to something you have said repeatedly on this show, Shane Steichen gets too cute for the room. He overthinks himself. Is this play one of those moments? I don't think there's any question about it. Don't think there's any question about it. Now, he would counter with this. First of all, he would say, who are you? You're stupid. And I'd understand that. But he would counter with, as he did after the game, we have practiced this over and over again. Tyler Goodson said the same thing. Minshew said the same thing. You, you, like I said, the defense can take a breather, can take a break. And not like, you know, taking a break at work or something like that. But on that play, they know they're not going to have to deal with 28 because he's standing over there on the sideline. To me, that was an egregious miscalculation. And if you want to go ahead and put that in the category of being too cute, if you're sticking, I would agree. Talking to JMV, the voice of sports in Indiana. So this now brings us to uh, the, the, the key question. What's next? How upset is Chris Ballard? How upset is Jim Ursay? What is, where are the rebuild pieces? And, and, and is, is it a rebuild? Or is it just now a surgical a strike team putting in the right people in one or two places, like, for example, tight end, where it's obvious we don't have one? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, you went an entire season, you know, you know, obviously, uh, Jelani Woods, and everybody thought he was going to be a difference maker. And, 
he had one hamstring and then another hamstring and put those together. He didn't play the entirety of the season. So, yeah, they need time. And, you know, here we go again, uh, back at being a defining player. Here was the major difference, the Houston defining players in terms of Stroud and Collins. It was better than what the Colts had in their defining player in Jonathan Taylor. It was clear that they still don't have that threat. I like Michael Pittman Jr., Alec Pierce didn't have a catch in that game. Again, you've got to go back. You need with this group a defining wide receiving playmaker somehow, some way. That still eludes them. And again, I would I want to see Michael Pittman Jr. back, but it is too easy, like we saw on Saturday night. They took him away. The Colts need that threat. And really, it's funny. You look back at the Eagles, and I know they're not a great example now because of the weather playing going into the postseason. But that moment for them was bringing A.J. Brown in. And he's one of those defining playmaker wide receivers to add to Jalen Hurts and to add to their offense You know, with Nick Sirianni then and Shane Steichen being the offensive coordinator. I would have to think, with that experience in Philadelphia, that Shane Steichen, as well as we still know, that that's how far they are away from having that type of definable player, and they still need it. And obviously, Tony, the other thing is the secondary. I mean, the secondary has to be improved. you got to put a lot of focus there um, because it, it, it – they thought going in this was going to be re- re- rebuilt, and they won to a point where it no longer was going to be just known as a rebuild. But you have to look at that secondary and say there needs to be a lot of work done. I'll tell you another big deal on Saturday night, Toad, here. Julian Blackman not being out there. I'd like to think Julian Blackman is in the game on that first play if he's healthy and doesn't so easily buy into leaving Juju Brents on an island against Nico Collins and making that 75-yarder easy for a touchdown to start the game. I thought he was a huge loss. He's a free agent. We'll see if the Colts want to bring him back as well. But that secondary needs a great deal of work. JMV, he is the voice of sports in Indiana. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. A lot of people want to tell you how homicide is down across the country. Crime rates are are down. It's because the Democrats are doing such great work in the cities. And of course, we know that's not true. Because if you ask anybody who lives in those cities, they will tell you that lawlessness is through the roof. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. The theft is through the roof. Uh, Everything you want at a a Walmart or, or a CVS in a downtown is under lock and key. And maybe not everyone, but far too many of them. You gotta, you, you can't just go in and shop like a normal person because the theft is rampant. So the idea that you want to tell us, look how this is down, that is down. It, it may be true, and I'm not saying that you can't say it, but you can't then just say, we're done. How dare you not look at the totality of the picture? There is a bakery in Los Angeles and this bakery, Ruben's Bakery and Mexican Food, this is in Compton. It was the target of a smash and grab. They used a car, a Kia, to drive into the storefront. During this, they took over the street, this, this mob of people. They drive in, uh, take the car, drive through the door, and then people steal everything. The owners of the bakery, 
which it's been there for 50 years, are saying nobody gets punished for anything. No one's going to go to jail for this. No one is going to be charged for this. Lawlessness is happening. Even if homicides are down, which I would applaud, lawlessness is up and fear is everywhere. How dare the administration or local municipalities not notice this reality, not recognize where the people are in being disgusted by what they see. How wrong that is, which is why local elections matter. Why you got to pay attention. Why these parties, Republicans, you have to run people in these races. You got to fight for something better. This is Tony Katz today. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So it started with a conversation about an abortion that was provided to a 10-year-old. It's a disgusting awful story of abuse and of rape it comes from ohio but it ended up in the state of indiana where you had a doctor caitlin bernard performing this abortion and it made national news tony katz tony katz today good to be with you but the information getting to the public well that's been an interesting question was the doctor in this case dr caitlin bernard in the wrong For sharing information with a reporter, as opposed to engaging the confidentiality of a client. The Attorney General of Indiana, Todd Rokita, has spoken uh, about this, has engaged action on this subject. And for his comments, in an interview uh, with Jesse Waters on Fox News, you had uh, in Indiana, the Indiana Supreme Court, saying that there was a violation that took place in the Indiana Supreme Court Disciplinary Commission Commission saying there was a violation that took place. The Attorney General Todd Rokita disagrees. There was then another conversation that could impact his work as Attorney General. The Attorney General joins us right now. Todd Rokita on the line. It's good to have you, sir. Uh, give me the elevator pitch of your comments regarding Dr. Bernard and what it is the commission is saying about you and now how you have responded in this disciplinary case. Yeah, hey, thanks, Tony. I appreciate you. appreciate your show. Hey, look, this was about 16 words a year and a half ago that the left political opponents, the confused quote-unquote media keep wanting to bring up because they don't want to let it die. You know, first of all, this was about patient privacy. And the doctor clearly violated patient privacy when she went to the Indianapolis Star and national news outlets and her own licensing board found her in violation. So that case is closed. Um, It was an emotional issue for sure. You know, if this was, Tony, about your prostate or something like that, I guarantee you no one would care. Uh, And people have to realize that 20 at any given time at the attorney general's office, there are 20 or so open cases we have against doctors on this very type of issue, this patient privacy issue. So this is something that uh, that we do. Uh, now, uh, some people had a problem, and you know what? I always cooperated with the Disciplinary Commission, always cooperated with the Supreme Court, had a problem with the context 
uh, of what I said, and, and, you know, and, and, and whether or not it violated or impeded, or should say, some rules, some rules of process, some rules of court. But what I didn't do was violate anyone's confidentiality. What I didn't do was um, violate any state statute, and I was not fined. And that's what I had said later after the court came out with its opinion, agreeing with the court. So, you know, I, and, and, but the news media wants to conflate all that, and the left wants to conflate all that to, to say that, oh, he admitted what he did was, did was wrong, and then he refuted it. No. Well, let me, a let rule, me give a, you – A rule uh, of court is not a state statute, is not a fine, it's not these other things. And so I, would, I made that clear, and, 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 and here we be. Let me let me give you though the, the the commentary here, sir. The argument is the disciplinary commission uh, went to unseal the agreement that that you had made, and this is how they stated: "Quote, respondents' actions flouted the authority of the court, called into question the sincerity of respondents' assertions to the court in his conditional agreement and affidavit, and caused damage to the public's perception of the integrity and justness." of the attorney discipline system. That's the argument that they're making. Are you contending here that their argument is purely political? Uh, it's, it's something. It's something that's wrong and not right. Listen, if, if anyone's impeding the integrity of the court, it's news media. It's, 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 it's political opponents who want this story to never end and want to make me say that what I said a year and a half ago was false. And, Tony, you make this reference about uh, the TV series all the time. There are four lights. I will never say there's five. I will never say there's three. There are four. And, and, and so well, I stand behind exactly what I said. I always will, and I always be transparent with the people of Indiana like I have here. Um, you know, the, this commission, which is an arm of the Supreme Court, is supposed to be it's supposed to be an arbiter of the truth. It's supposed to be a truth finder. It's not supposed to be on one side uh, or the other. And, and to the extent people are having less confidence in the system, it's because of the weaponization that's allowed to happen, uh, not only here in these kinds of cases, but across the country uh, with the judicial system. So I think we have to be very careful in Indiana to say, hey, we're not going to let this our system get weaponized by special political interest who never want this issue to go away. So let's so let's take a step back. Talking to the Attorney General of Indiana, Todd Rokita, are you stating that your comments about the decision and your deal with the Supreme Court, that your comments after the fact are not violating the agreement that you were discussing? Absolutely not. In fact, the, the, the public knows, as far as I'm concerned, the public knows uh, the, the entire contents of the agreement uh, already. So I'm not objecting to if, if you want to release this, these, this document and agreement now, which would be the first time in the history of the court that we can tell. Uh, but fine. And in fact, what I'm saying is to make sure that this commission has the confidence of the people of Indiana and all the attorneys that it regulates make the deliberations concerning me all public as well. Not just ones in the past, but, but you know, as, if this goes forward, what, whatever's going to happen. Make this, make this 
uh, available to everybody, including their deliberations. This is a commission that's not elected by anybody. They've never met in public. Uh, and, and, and here they are um, basically inserting themselves in news cycles. And to me, that's far from being um, the arbiters of truth. And it's gotten themselves into the, this political mess. What our filings have done, um, our recent response to the court has said, we want to disentangle you, the commission, from all these things. So get back to uh, going after attorneys who have stolen clients' money, uh, who have gotten DUIs, who are driving around drunk, who are doing these other things uh, that are a serious impediment to the the judicial process. Are you concerned that with this conversation, other conversations that you've had, Attorney General Rokita, um, that this commission could move to take away your law license and therefore effectively ending your career as attorney general? Listen, this case is, is closed, and uh, no. I mean, it would be unprecedented. It would be completely out of line. We're talking about 16 words from 1.5 years ago. A year and a half ago, we're, talking, we're not talking about me uh, being drunk, groping women. We're not talking about me stealing clients' money. We're not talking about those things uh, that you do get your license suspended for, and rightfully so. We're talking about um, matters of style. And again, with the news media and, pol- and a left polit- political opponents who just can't stand that I am um, suing Biden about the border as an attorney general, that I promised to go after China and have ending the last Confucius Institute in Indiana at Valparaiso. But you're University. saying, and I don't mean to interrupt, I want to make sure I'm clear, you're saying that you're talking about the settlement of this issue because that's what they're saying is the issue. There's nothing there and that everything that comes after that is political. I mean, that's that is the crux of your argument. Yeah, I don't know what you mean by nothing there, but again, everything that is substantive in that agreement that I know about, as far as I'm concerned, has already been made public, either through the Supreme Court's own opinion, which for the first time cited the contents of a of a conditional agreement, um, or just through other news media accounts, uh, or what we had filed in response. Look, you know, I, I, I met the Disciplinary Commission, Tony. I met him halfway, if not more, and said, you know what? Okay. You know, in terms of a, of a rule of court, in terms of a rule of process, you know, maybe someone could have found that what I said on TV a year and a half ago for those 16 words uh, did not meet standard. Um, but it certainly did not break anyone's confidentiality, and it certainly did not break any state statutes, and I certainly wasn't fined for it. And, and so let's get beyond this. I'll stand up and I'll be responsible and I'll I'll meet you guys halfway, if not more, and we'll and we'll move down the road. Now, some don't want that. Some don't want that to be over because, like I said, before you interjected, of all the other stuff we're doing, I, they think I have to be stopped somehow, some way. And 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 that's just not the case. I'm not going to be stopped. I'm not going to be shut up. I'm not going to be silenced. The disciplinary commission recently wanted me to have a gag order. Where have you heard gag order before? <laughs> you know from an arm of the judiciary, but that's the place that they have found themselves and that they're putting Indiana. And I'm just going to continue on representing voters, representing taxpayers, representing the people who put me in office to do the very thing that I'm doing. That is the attorney general of Indiana, Todd Rokita. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We're going to follow this case as it 
progresses without question. If you ask, by the way, just so I'm on on the same page with you always, I thought that the doctor was flat out wrong in engaging this conversation and in violating the privacy of a child. And I still believe that to this day. I'm Tony Katz. Good things happening in the state of Indiana and a record amount of business coming to the state of Indiana. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. We're talking in the billions of dollars. It's wonderful news. It's terrific news. Can we keep it up? And is there something we can be doing statewide to be even more aggressive about attracting more businesses here? And as I always discuss it, it's not just about the high tech. It is about all the tech, low tech and high tech, the manufacturing. We need it all and entertainment. I could prove the need for entertainment in every city or region of Indiana. It is extremely important because without it, without it, you cannot really make the other things work for the people. You're going to hear me say this a lot. Our state clearly can build a business. It can attract business. But if you don't have the entertainment to go along with it, it's going to be very hard to get the people to work in those jobs. And the last I checked, you're going to need the people to work in those jobs. Gary Dick joins us from InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter at IIB. Uh, you can find him personally at Gary Dick, G-E-R-R-Y, at Gary Dick on the Twitter box. $28.7 billion in commitments. Uh, that's, a, that's a lot of good money coming to the state of Indiana, Gary Dick. It is. And uh, a big spotlight put on the state. You know, Tony, the year before last, 2022, I think the number was something like 22 or $23 billion in uh, uh, commitments from companies uh, around the, really around the globe to invest in Indiana, those already here or those uh, looking to locate in Indiana. And a lot was made at that time of that big number, and how could that be topped? And it wasn't a big way. As you said, nearly $29 billion, that represents potential investment, you know, planned investment from more than 200 companies. And it runs the gamut. You know, we saw life sciences investment. We saw, you know, a lot of investment, as we've talked about, in the uh, the electrification of the auto industry. Um, uh, Stellantis, uh, Samsung, SDI, GM, uh, a number of companies investing big time in Indiana. So from a number standpoint uh, and from an attraction, a success rate standpoint, 2023 was uh, was a really good year for the state. And if you talk to folks at the Indiana Economic Development Corporation and elsewhere around the state, they say 24 is shaping up, the pipeline is shaping up to be yet another good year. So some momentum. It's certainly something that Brad Chambers, uh, the former Secretary of Commerce, is going to utilize in his run for, for, for governor and taking credit for these things. The other, I think, big story is how Indiana is again ranked amongst the best states to start a business. Is this a taxation conversation or is this a regulation conversation or is this a talent conversation? You know, I think all of the above. And you're referencing Forbes. They came out with their list of the uh, best uh, best states to start a business. 
Indiana actually fell, but they were number one last year. Indiana was number one last year. This year they just fell one spot there. So they're number two in the country, Indiana is, in terms of the best states to start a business. They look at a number of metrics, uh, Tony, in this uh, study. Look at uh, uh, the environment for business growth, uh, the financial environment for entrepreneurs, cost of living, uh, regulation, you know, a number of factors that contribute to that. And, you know, as I look at it, uh, and, and where Indiana stacks up when it comes to, to a, uh, a business-friendly or business development standpoint, you know, the lists come and go, and, and Indiana and other states are ranked in various places. But I put a lot of stock in what I hear, uh, what you hear from CEOs and site selection consultants and those people who are really actively involved in locating companies and locating a big investment. Not what they're saying on camera, but what they're saying behind the camera. And I can tell you, uh, that, uh, you know, time and time again, the reaction I get from CEOs and those looking to locate or relocate or maybe put a big investment is the business-friendly environment in, in Indiana outpaces uh, certainly neighboring states and is among uh, the better environments uh, in the country. You would think that every state would be a welcoming business environment, but that's apparently not the case. I mean, uh, not to pile on Illinois because we tend to do that, but. Oh, do it. Pile on to Illinois. Yeah. (laughs) And the bears suck. Go on. Yeah. Who are looking to locate or relocate. And they cite that as an example uh, in how there's, there's somewhat of an anti-business attitude or environment. And it's quite the opposite here. And I think it's being reflected in this, uh, this Forbes study that uh, Forbes report that just came out. Talking to Illinois hater, Gary Dick. (laughs) <laughs> from InsideIndianaBusiness.com. No, is that not the way I say it? It's not yeah, the way? exactly. Oh, okay. Thought, I thought I had that right. The got beat on, fri- on uh, Friday night, too. So, uh, Talk to me about this, this story that has made a lot of noise uh, about how um, Indy has topped missed Midwestern cities in three-year GDP growth. You compare Indianapolis and really the metro. So not just indie proper. Two other areas, Milwaukee, Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Columbus, Kansas City, St. Louis. We're up 8.4% with $12.1 billion worth of impact. And the next closest one um, is, is $9.4 billion out of St. Louis. Have we figured out how this number comes together? Yeah, I... I, I, I I, I was surprised <laughs> when I saw that number, especially, Tony, and you and I talked a little bit about it, but the IU Kelly School of Business came out a few weeks ago and talked about a, a competitiveness uh, uh, issue for, in particular for Indianapolis because of the kinds of jobs uh, attracted here in terms of uh, perhaps not being as high wage as some of the other uh, jobs. But this report that came out, as you said, Pierce cities in the Midwest, Minneapolis, uh, St. Louis, Cincinnati, uh, you can go, and go on down the list, Indianapolis was substantially higher, the Indy metro area substantially higher. And I think it's reflective of some of the life sciences manufacturing uh, investment uh, that uh, has come and is coming to uh, central Indiana as well. But a very positive sign heading into 2024 as you try to prop up, uh, if you will, the business case for Indianapolis and central Indiana. Don't get me wrong, guys. I love this number. My thanks to Gary Dick for joining us from InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I love the number. For the Indianapolis Metro, and it's good for all of us. It's good for the totality of of the state of Indiana. But I think that we have to answer that question to understand how to grow other parts of the state. 
Is it Indianapolis doing something? Well, you can argue it's the capital of the state and already has football and it's got the basketball. It's going to have the, the, the soccer with Indy 11 and that new stadium. So uh, by nature, more people are drawn there. But if indeed it's the state and the, the level of regulation, the lack thereof, that the tax uh, conversation, how low it is, uh, how friendly we are to business, well, then we can engage opportunities for more entertainment in other parts of the state. We can engage the growth in a better way. I think it is the latter. I don't think it has anything to do with something Indianapolis is doing specifically. It is just the luck they get from being the capital. I think the opportunities are there because as a state, we're a pretty smart state when it comes to the business stuff. Now we just need to be much more aggressive about it and on the entertainment side because that's what drives people. It makes them excited about moving there. Understand why the business wants to move there, yes. What makes the people want to be a part of the business? It's having the whole life outside of work. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. So this economy of ours seems to want to do well. That doesn't mean that it's doing well. But, Tony, the jobs numbers were up. Well, yeah, but they've also been revised downward. Tony, the gas prices are down. Yes, that part is absolutely true. But you still don't feel a level of of relief. You don't feel a level of, huh, all right, we're through this. And the question is, why not? Why don't we feel the relief? Is it possible that what we're being told doesn't match up to the reality? Oh, sure. You can take a look at all the indicators you want and say, my goodness, things are better, but not in our own pocketbooks. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Become a subscriber. I'd greatly appreciate it. TonyKatz.com. That is Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. He is the guy I go to. When nothing makes sense whatsoever, let me give you the, this this one-two punch uh, right here. The payrolls in December increased by 216,000, which is better than I think the 170,000 that was expected. That's headline number one. Here's headline number two, right? It's the shot and it's the chaser, Dr. Will. Initial U.S. employment reports overstated by 439,000 jobs in 2023, which means that when they put out a jobs report, sir, they go back two months later and they're like, you know what? We said it was 150,000 jobs. It was only 120,000. We said it was 210,000 jobs. It was only 174,000. They were off by nearly 450,000 jobs. Talk to me about the jobs numbers you saw from that December report first. Is this continuing good news for a better economy? Well, okay. First of all, you, you stole my thunder. Second of all, you didn't read the memo from cringe John Pierre this morning to the media. Uh, let me take a look at this here. Uh, remember to tell everyone about the 216,000 jobs. Do not look at revisions. Do not look at the details of government and healthcare. Ignore those and focus on the headline like we tell you to do every month. Well, we're going to ignore that and we're going to look at the details. You mentioned it, the down revision. So let's do some simple math. So hopefully people can do this if they didn't go to a bad public school. 216,000 new jobs. Subtract 
71,000 for down revisions and subtract 90,000 for government and healthcare, which is government induced hiring. That brings us to 55,000. 55,000 new jobs last month. That's it. That is nothing to brag about. And like you mentioned, 439,000 revisions down for the year. That's not even for the whole year. We but, don't have the December revisions. It could be over half a million jobs. Tony, we lied to people last month. You and I were bragging about how great the jobs report was. You said, look, you don't want to get bare bad news. If it's good, it's good. We told the world it was good. We were wrong. Wait a second. I asked you what the report was. I'll say that you were wrong. But I think the bigger question here is, in an average year, when we see 439,000 revisions, what's usual? What's normal for the number of revisions that take place? I mean, revisions do take place. You get a little more fine-tuned in the number after you have some time to look at the data. Is this way out of whack or just slightly out of whack? That's a great question. And let me tell you, I did some digging on that exact question. So you got the question, but you didn't steal my thunder on it. I looked back and found that the Philadelphia Fed reported in Q2, just quarter two of 2022, 1.1 million jobs too many. They overreported. They had to down revise by 1.1 million just in the second quarter. I went back and looked. This is a modern era problem. This is a Biden era problem. We didn't have these massive revisions pre-Biden. I'm not saying this is a conspiracy. I'm not in favor of the Illuminati because I'm trying to get in, of course. But I'm telling you, there is something going on here. And the data is false. And it's a serious problem. And it's been a recent phenomenon. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of of Indianapolis. Uh, This brings us to where this economy is is going and a lot of people want to talk about the the soft landing this is janet yellen the treasury secretary having that conversation is the, uh... it is very rare to bring down um inflation as much as we have without seeing a weakening in the job market but we have 23 months in a row unemployment under 40 percent haven't seen that in 50 years so the soft landing, did it happen? I, what we're seeing now, I think we can describe as a soft landing, and my hope is that it will, it will continue. So that's the Treasury Secretary announcing soft landing. Look, I want it. I don't want the, the, the recession. I don't want the inflation, sir. I don't want any of that. But that's Janet Yellen on CNN stating unequivocally that the soft landing has come. Is she right? Possibly right, but totally false in who she's giving credit to. When she says we, 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 I'm tired of us talking about the administration and the government. The fact is that we have 8.7 million people holding more than one job right now. So she's talking about a strong labor market. That's the highest number in the history of our country. 8.7 million people are holding more than one job. So don't give me this we, we, we. This is just like we talk about the battle between Jerome Powell and Biden. It's a battle between Biden and capitalism. Biden is bad for the economy. Capitalism is good. The reason we're having a soft landing, Tony, the reason the economy is looking decent is because the government is too stupid to regulate AI. This year, AI is going to generate 10% of all data in the economy. Cybersecurity is growing by leaps and bounds. 
innovation. Look at Lilly. Lilly is waiting for the stupid FDA to approve their Alzheimer's drug. They announced Lilly Direct recently. This is revolutionizing the pharma industry with telehealth, cost-cutting, removing the middleman. There's a lot of innovation going on, and the economy is doing well in spite of Biden. Not because of him. It's in spite of him. Well, let's talk about something that's doing well. This is the energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, talking about gas prices. You know, for us in the U.S., the gas prices, for example, are at 309 uh, today, 3.089, something like that, um, more than $1.93 lower than the peak after Putin's war, uh, 30 states in 30 states, the average is less than $3 a gallon. So we are, so far, uh, we aren't seeing the price per barrel or the impact at the pump. Now, you and I have discussed the price per barrel, talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. And the price per barrel issue is because China is utilizing much less oil. They're doing much less production, which is a big conversation about this world recession, recession in China and their economic issues in Europe, et cetera. But in my beloved Indiana, yours too, you drive down the road and gas is indeed under $3 a gallon. So they get to take some credit for that. Uh, no, even no, if You're no, saying it's undeserved, no. but they can take the credit. No, they can't take the credit because when they came in office, it was under $2 a gallon. They shot it up over $4 a gallon and they bring it down. How does this math work? How gullible are people that they think, let's make it really, really bad. And then when we improve it a little, we'll take credit for the improvement. But please don't look at the bad. This is like the revision in the employment numbers. Look at the headline today. Please don't look at the last year and a half when we've had to revise it by over a million jobs. This is totally bogus. The recession globally that's happening in China and Germany is pulling down the gas prices after they had already jacked it up and they came into office, it was lower. That's just the reality of the situation. The policies of this administration are destroying the economy and the great innovation of capitalism in our corporate America is what's growing the economy. And I hope the capitalism wins and Biden loses. So you this this falls in line with a conversation you've had consistently that that this economy has been a, a, a conversation of Biden versus Powell and who wins this fight. This is a comment that I, I, I got uh, on our conversation. Uh, the economy is outperforming all expectations, and it's because of the positive impact from the Inflation Reduction Act. And a president who, despite MAGA theater, is a good and decent man who believes in smart policies. Elect a president who doesn't believe in democracy, and you end up with the chaos that was 2020 and January 6th. I bring this up to you, sir, not to get your political perspective on this, but but rather this seems to be, when we have conversations about the economy, Where people go, it's a retreat to political fiefdoms and ideology as opposed to the data itself. Is your argument regarding Biden and the economy, is that your political belief or is that the data that you see and you are able to interpret? It's just factual data. I mean, first of all, that statement is a lie. The Inflation Reduction Act was an Inflation Creation Act. Even the most liberal of economists admit that. So that's just factually wrong. The data tells us that private industry AI is growing at 10% in the economy. That's private industry. That's not the government. Like I said, thank God the government's too stupid to regulate AI or they would shut it down. 
the things that are, Lily is doing, CrowdStrike, you know, you name Adobe, Salesforce, NVIDIA, what those companies are doing are revolutionary. Tony, I could give you stories of what insurance companies are doing with AI to improve the efficiency of claim services, to give you cheaper rates on your policies. I, could, I have lots of those stories I can share with you. I have them right here, right now. Those people are doing great things. It's not Biden. And people that throw in the politics of MAGA are trying to distract you from his bad policies. It, it, so how often do you run into this? You're an economist at a university, University of Indianapolis, right there in, in the heart of, of the city. Do you run into amongst, never mind a student set, but amongst a professional set? And I don't need you to out people or, or, or put yourself at risk per se. But do you run into people who mistake their ideology for data, for fact, for research, for, for, um, for policy? Yes. And there's a, there's a phrase and I forget at the top of my head what it is exactly, but I can tell you of people that are even liberal politically in the university setting who have to bite their tongue and shut up because there's a political narrative that occurs that contradicts the facts. Objective, even liberal, objective people see data and what they see is different than what they're told to say and told to speak and told to support. That's a common narrative that we see in the university world. I have a lot of colleagues at my university who are very good at speaking the truth, and we don't get in that much trouble. But I know other people who are, are biting their tongue, not saying what they know is factually true. Uh, it, 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 it seems to be a constant, constant refrain and certainly seems to be constant that people want to utilize uh, their politics as a way of proving every other data point. But we get back to, to where we're going. And this idea of the soft landing, which would mean we are able to lower inflation and get out of this moment without recession. The Fed had indicated that they were looking at three rate cuts, three interest rate cuts for 2024. But then a look at the minutes of that meeting contradicts that and says, well, we hope. But we're not sure we're going to be able to do it. The minutes say that everything we said out loud isn't necessarily true. Where are we feeling or what indicators should we be looking at to see whether or not the soft landing can actually occur? You know what? I, I want us to stop looking at the Fed minutes. I want us to stop looking at the, the reports coming out of the BEA and the BLS.gov. I want us to look at the economy because that's going to tell us the soft landing or not. The federal government's doing a terrible job. The first two quarters, I'm sorry, the first two months of this fiscal year, $164 billion deficit. That's a $2 trillion for the year. We're forecasted to have a $2 trillion deficit. The government is doing nothing but harming the economy with that. It's the capitalism that's going to make us have a soft landing. It's innovation. I'm hoping that the government fights. We have a nice debate and it gets ugly for this election year. Because if they're busy fighting, they're not going to mess with the economy, which improves our chances of a soft landing because innovation will win the day. I sincerely believe that. I know it sounds abstract, but I really believe that. And I give you information, company after company after company that's doing great things. Well, if you keep telling the government to regulate AI, uh, that's you got to stop that. Don't get yes. ideas. You got to stop it. Just like, thank goodness they didn't regulate the Internet when it was developed. We wouldn't have the Internet today. Don't. Give them idea. I'm trying. Help me help you. That's all I'm asking for. Sorry. Doctor. I apologize.
Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. So we've got a spending deal, kind of, maybe. I assume it's going uh, to go through. It really is up to Republicans. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. It's not that you won't have some Democrats coming across on on this one because Republicans are not getting everything uh, that they wanted. I think the key is going to be where they feel they are on the border and border funding. Now, this is a $1.59 trillion deal that's going on. $886 billion for defense spending. And then you have $704 in non-defense spending. And then you've got a $69 billion side deal that's adjustments that's going to go toward non-defense domestic spending. Um, This whole deal has to be, because this whole deal starts with a, a bit of framework that was already in in place and they were working around that. And they're also trying to, with the uh, extensions that they've done, they've got one coming up uh, January 19th, another one February 2nd, and now they're trying to avert government shutdown, which I I don't get worked up by. I, I can't get myself to be worked up by them not doing their job. It just seems crazy to me. seems, seems flat out uh, uh, silly. But the, the, so that's where a lot of this framework already is. But the issue here is going to be border. That's what is going to, in the House especially, be the issue of getting something passed. You already have Chip Roy of Texas saying, quote, we must make funding for federal government operations contingent on the president signing HR2 or its functional equivalent into law and stopping the flow across our border which means you could have Republicans saying, we're not, we're not voting for this. You don't have enough for the border here. Sorry, Mike Johnson, we don't have enough. We don't, we don't have it. Which, uh, why'd you bring in Mike Johnson as speaker then? Why'd you have to get rid of Kevin McCarthy if this was going to be the case? Also, remember the majority is ever shrinking. You got rid of Santos. Kevin McCarthy resigned, which, sorry, that was a blank you uh, to, to the Republicans. It was what it was. I would say that to the man. And Steve Scalise is dealing with a medical issue, and so he's out. So your majority is like, what, one, two people? Yeah, it's going to be tight. And then there's the question of how it's going to do in the Senate. We'll see that. But first, where's the House on this? And um, You don't have some of these Republicans. You just don't. And they're not wrong. The border is everything. Find everything from me at TonyCats.com tomorrow, everyone. Take care.